Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a look at how journalism looks from the outside. We're going to be launching our new print issue at CJR this week, which we're calling The Perception Issue, which is about how others see us. We spend a lot of time at CJR looking at how journalists view their work, and what we've decided to do was to sort of switch the camera around and look at how journalism looks from people who once were journalists but aren't and from people who are subjects of the news. Um, This week, we're going to be talking with Susan Bro um, about what it feels like to be besieged um, by journalism after a tragedy. And I'm joined here uh, first um, by Camille Bromley, who's a a contributing editor at CJR, who, who interviewed Susan for this issue. Welcome, Camille. Hi, glad to be here. We're going to talk to Susan in just a second, but what were you, when you went to this interview with her, why did you think she was a particularly apt person to talk to if we're trying to understand the makings of journalism for the people who are affected by journalism? Mm-hmm, sure. So first, um, I was trying to find a subject, a, a person who has been really bombarded with press attention, um, with very sudden, very ongoing um, it, press attention, which is extremely invasive. Um, and Susan, you know, I was researching some different people, um, and Susan is really unique in how she handled and responded to press attention. Um, so after Charlottesville, Heather Heyer, who is Susan's uh, daughter, um, became the face of this um, national tragedy. Um, but then Susan became um, the person that the press asked over and over again uh, to articulate this tragedy to the public. That's in the wake of Charlottesville. That's one year later for the anniversary, um, and, th- and then again in this fall um, for the trial of James Fields. Um, so she's really been um, asked over and over and over again um, about her daughter's death, about the events in Charlottesville. I mean, you've been a journalist for a while. Have you? How much have you thought about this in your own work? How much have you thought about this sort of relationship um, with people you talk to, especially people who have been through um, traumatic situations? Um, have you, do you are you really purposeful about it, or or how much do you sort of put yourself in your in their shoes? Yeah, I would say quite a lot, actually. Um, I'm someone just my personality is quite shy, quite apprehensive of public attention. I do think journalism is kind of, it's it's necessary, it's important. When you're talking, when you're making a story about people's lives, it's inherently exploitative. Um, And I think it's the responsibility of the journalist to mitigate that as much as possible. All right. So Susan, um, again, welcome. Um, Thank you so much for being here. And I'm and I and I have to start out by saying I'm so sorry um, that we're that we have to be talking about this, and I'm so sorry that, for the loss of your daughter. Thank you. I thought this interview was terrific, and I thought that your um, explanations of of how the descent of journalists en masse onto you, how these interactions with them happen, and then how. Those interviews were sort of chopped up and used in ways that didn't really reflect the conversation that you had with the reporters that you were talking to was so interesting. Um, And I also want to get into what you think the press should have done or should be doing that it's not. But but I don't I I don't want to sort of um, 
you know, talk through everything else that you've already discussed with us and everybody else about what happened on the day, what happened on the next day, what happened on the next day. But can you, Joe, though, give us a sense of um, like just an overall impression of um, what you thought journalists were like going into this? Like what were your preconceptions about what it must be like to be a subject of the news? I had often watched people who had suffered a loss on TV, and so often the family would not speak to the press, so you'd hear from the neighbors, and you'd get things like, uh, gosh, that kid was such a great kid, and I just don't know, and I feel so bad, and, and you never really learned anything about what happened, you never learned anything from the story, and then the story would go away. And I frankly cried all night long when she was killed. Um, but I knew that the press was coming because I'd already seen her death over and over and over again on TV. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, I wasn't even sure what she was wearing that day. I never saw her body again until uh, from August the 2nd which was the last time I saw my daughter alive until the day before the funeral. Uh-huh. So I, I didn't even know which of the people on TV was my daughter in that horrendous car thing. Uh-huh. And um, I was thinking when the person knocked on the door at 7 o'clock the next morning, I thought, well, I better figure out quickly what I want to say, what I want to do. I, I felt a tremendous responsibility from what I had seen on the national news scene that this was going to have national attention. I didn't know what that would look like or feel like, but it, the, when the first knock came at 7 in the morning, I said, oh, okay, let me figure out how I want to do this. And I brought the young man in. I can't even remember his face, but I had him sit at the kitchen table and we talked. And then he left. And then there was another knock. That was Ellie Silverman with the Washington Post. And I only remember that because Ellie and I have stayed in touch over the last year and a half. And um, she and I talked. But I thought, I don't really want to bring people in here anymore. I want to talk outside. And so ever since then, my home has been my safe space. And I don't allow reporters to even come to my home anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I knew they had a job to do. I wanted to make sure that the story was told truthfully and correctly. So I wanted to tell it myself and not have it told by other people. Um, but I had no idea what that swarm of press was going to mean for myself, my family, my children, friends, um, my parents, my neighbors, uh, I had no idea that it was going to have such um, an intense impact. Yeah, and this is, it's such an extraordinary thing that you did when you think about, when we think about, um, you're you're handling all of this within hours of um, the death of your child. Did, Did you find that you could that you, you had to sort of tackle one thing at a time? Or how did you manage to, to do this while processing that immense grief? Um, I did not process the immense grief until probably January of 2018. Mm-hmm. 
I just kept moving. I just kept moving. I just kept going and going. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that was fueled by my anger, um, anger at the situation. Because of the, the money situation, we formed the foundation almost immediately as a place to put that money that was coming in. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of my time and energy was taken up with dealing with the foundation. I continued to deal heavily with the press on up until um, at least November. And by then I had started being invited to speak at various places, um, not only about her death, but about the lessons that we could learn from her death and um, started kind of stepping into that role. But in the month of January last year, I just collapsed for about a month. Yeah. And um, that was the first time I really had a chance to process the grief. You said something really interesting to Camille, um, which was that you thought reporters probably had some expectation of who you are and what you were about. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, let me let me set the stage for you a little bit. Um, I live in a trailer in a small trailer park that's uh, been here since 1995. My trailer has been the trailer park's been here longer. But um, you come up on my kind of thrown together front little deck and at that time uh, we had uh, a container with some rusty wok sitting there with a dragonfly floating in it Um, we had uh, tools and other um, equipment sitting on a workbench out on the back porch and the steps are a little bit rickety and I had a tin roof that was rusty so already you can set the stage for expectation, and then you're met by the short, fat, white woman who um, has long gray hair, probably didn't even have any makeup on, because like I said, I've been crying all night. My face was swollen. So as human beings, we have certain stereotypes and biases in our mind, and they don't know that I was a school teacher with graduate work in education. They don't know that I had been a government secretary and bookkeeper for seven years. They don't know any of that. All they know is what they see. So they're going to have certain expectations. And when I open my mouth and I'm not about, y'all done killed my kid. (laughs) And, um, you know, calling for hate and vitriol and uh, sobbing mindlessly. I think it just took people aback. What's impressive to me is how you took control of your own story. Um, and you had uh, you had what, what seems to me to be a pretty deliberate press strategy to use all this attention you were getting from the press, but to tell a different story than they wanted you to. Like I said at the funeral, if I have to give her up, I'm going to make it count for something. Hmm. So, so what if my daughter died as far as the world goes on? But let's look at why she died, and let's look at what we can do as a result of what has been revealed with her death. Um, what mother doesn't cry when her, her child is killed? That I'm not unique in, in losing a child. I'm not unique in crying because I lose my child. But what are the lessons to learn here? For me, that's been the focus all along. Uh, Susan, do you have a sense of why that kind of bigger story is so hard for reporters to get their hands around or for news organizations to grapple with? Is it, I mean, you've now talked to a a ton of working journalists 
Do you have theories in terms of why they have a hard, such a hard time with story with big stories like that? Um, probably in the beginning, I wasn't even saying a, a lot of that. I mean, I really don't remember. Honestly, it's, it's been a year, a very intense year and a half. In the beginning, I was mostly answering questions about Heather, and then I began to shift the narrative as I was hearing uh, from the black community how this was putting a white face and a white savior complex on the whole issue, and I thought. My God, you're absolutely right. Let's shift the focus back to where it needs to be. So somewhere along the line, I shifted the focus off of Heather herself and what she stood for to what needs to be done. Um, And that was a difficult shift for editors to make because they're hearing those messages from a lot of people. Uh, The other thing is uh, people... um, sometimes want the quick and easy sound bite. They don't want to think. They just want to feel and then move on. And editors are aware of what leadership wants. Management of editors, uh, the marketing department may have certain uh, slants and mandates that they want in order to sell news. And I think some of that comes into the issue um, it's simpler and more unique to tell the story of this woman grieving her child. But honestly, the only thing that makes it unique is that I'm white. Tons of mothers lose their kids in civil rights issues. Tons of mothers lose their kids to um, racial injustice issues. And, and we don't hear a whole lot about them after the first few minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. Um. You know, one of the one of the reasons I thought it was I thought it was fascinating to have Camille here to talk about this is that the the interview that the two of you did, Camille and Susan, is is like a micro version. You were grappling in a in, in a kind of a way with the issues that Susan's talking about more broadly. I, I don't know if I'm making that very clear, but so it was sort of an interview about interviews, right? Mm-hmm. Um, going into this, you were aware. You must have been aware of like how how are you going to navigate this? Did you cringe at any of what you asked or did, or was there something that you didn't see that you were like, oh my god, why didn't I ask that question? I mean, one thing that's interesting now that I would like to ask you is uh, this. There's an irony in me. Um, interviewing you about your experience, your dissatisfactions with the press, because I'm also a member of the press. Um, and a, a lot of your complaints have to do with um, the story always focusing on Heather's death, focusing on you as a mother. Um, and I'm also talking to you not about Heather, but I'm I'm adding to that attention yet again. Um, so I wonder if I'm kind of like, you know, piling on in a way, even though I'm criticizing the piling on. Well, let, let me remove that guilt from you. <laughs> I had been wanting to talk to a member of the press uh, about the, these very things in a way that would be constructive and helpful. Um, I think I mentioned in the interview that I had talked to a young woman who led the DACA movement on the march to um, D.C., I believe it was from Florida, somewhere in the south yeah i think so. and she complained how the journalists would always talk to all the guys on the truth uh, uh on the march i mean and um would ask them all these intense serious questions she who had actually started the movement 
was always asked, what's it like to, to travel with a bunch of guys? And that's the only thing the press would ask for. Um, I, I've caught whiffs of frustration from other people. Now, I'm a teacher by profession, although I walked away from it uh, due to health issues in uh, 2010. I am still a teacher at heart. And so for me, I wanted to find someone who could listen to me and then transfer that lesson off to hopefully get to editors and or reporters and say, all right, let's move past this um, superficial stuff and get at the heart of the matter. And I know it's not easy to do, but perhaps people do feel guilty for probing deeper. Um, I don't, you know, I can't. I don't know what your side of the, the mirror looks like. All I know is what I'm seeing on this side, and that is uh, that people so often just want to get the quick story. Mm-hmm. But I had been waiting for someone that I could say that to. Yeah, it's really so helpful. Journalists tend to sort of talk amongst ourselves, and we sort of even diagnose our own problems by talking to ourselves, and that's really not how we're going to find a solution to any of this stuff. Um so, Susan, tell me about the foundation and, and the work that you're doing now. So the foundation was formed pretty quickly after her death because money was pouring in from all sorts of places, coming through the mayor's office, coming through TV stations, through the funeral homes, and there was a livery showing up at my house. And it would be $5, $10, $20, $50, maybe 100 but usually smaller amounts of people who just said, I care, I want to help. And we had already had a GoFundMe that I closed because it had got so big, and I was kind of freaked out by it. And now we have moved on to uh, developing uh, higher voices, which is youth empowerment programs at the college and or high school level. We're looking to um, offer support um, and education assistance to uh, people who are the next generation of activists, advocates, and allies. I say I'm training Heather's replacement. And uh, so we're offering local high school scholarships plus one adult in-college scholarship. I'm, I'm looking to develop something that will outlast me and be sustainable. I'm starting to write, um, working on some children's books, books about of what I talk about in my speeches, and... Uh, letters to Heather. Um, yeah, it sounds like you're keeping very busy. It sounds like you have three or four full-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's what it feels like, yeah. Um, well, Susan, thanks so much for speaking to us. It's, it's so great to hear from you again. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, thank, uh, thank you, Susan. It's terrific to talk to you, and hopefully other journalists will hear this, and it'll change the way people do their jobs, because that's the point. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much, and thanks to everyone for listening to this edition of The Kicker. As as I said at the outset, um, the interview with Susan is part of the new print issue of CJR, the perception issue, which is out now, and we're rolling it out online, so you can check that out at cjr.org, as well as everything else that we do at CJR. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.